Good evening. I hope everyone was able to have a good Mother's Day today and have a good Sunday afternoon. Um, in our lesson tonight, we're going to be continuing with what we talked about this morning, and we're going to be furthering the story a little bit. So in the lesson this morning, Paul is warned repeatedly about going to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, you're going to be imprisoned, they're going to persecute you, it's dangerous. And a lot of the Christians who love him very much are saying, don't do it. Go somewhere else. Go find another place to do your ministry. Go back among the Gentiles. Uh, granted, things weren't always easy there, but, but it seems to be safer for you there than it's going to be at Jerusalem. The Spirit was letting prophets know Paul's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. Paul, knowing all of this, decides to go to Jerusalem anyway. And he goes there and he offers this demonstration of unity between his message that he's preaching and those of the Christians in Jerusalem. It seems that the, the church in Jerusalem is still very zealous for the law. By the way, Acts chapter 21 and verse 20, just keep that phrase in mind. Uh, this is James speaking to Paul and explaining kind of the situation of the church in Jerusalem. And he says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Keep that phrase in mind. It'll be important uh, as, we, as we see what happens with Paul. Um, so Paul ends up saying, okay, I'll, I'll do an act of unity to show that uh, I still think the law matters, and I, I still think that uh, the, the church can, can be united on this issue. So he goes to the temple and sacrifices offered on behalf of him and some people who were there with him. And while he's there, some other Jews see him. And there's all kinds of rumors swirling about Paul. Uh, Paul, I mean, we, we, we've seen several of them already. Uh, some of the rumors are that Paul goes out to Jews outside of Jerusalem and tells them, forsake Moses, ignore the law, don't be circumcised, and all of that stuff, which doesn't seem to be true. At least that's a gross misstatement of, of what Paul's beliefs, even if there's some truth to some of the things that are said. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very... It's, so ungenerous an interpretation of his teaching that it's actually a wrong interpretation of his teaching. Uh, and so some people are saying things like that. Others see him at the temple and they just assume, hey, this is the guy who hangs out with Gentiles all the time. I saw him with a Gentile yesterday. I bet he brought that Gentile to the temple. And that's what they end up causing the big, the big riot over. And that's why he ends up getting uh, arrested and they're going to they're gonna beat him. And they're, I mean, they're wanting to kill Paul because uh, someone saw him with a Gentile yesterday and just assumed he brought a Gentile into the temple, which you're not really supposed to do, uh, at least outside of a particular court. Uh, and so all of these rumors are swirling. They're going to take Paul and beat him, but then the Roman authorities, they see this big uh, commotion. They go over there and they get Paul and they, they put him in chains and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And you find out another rumor that's swirling about him. This Roman authority has no idea who Paul is. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 21 in verse 37, it says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, this is the Roman commander, um, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Then you are not some Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Where did that come from? That's what he thought Paul was. He thought Paul was some Egyptian uh, who had uh, led a revolt earlier. So it seems like no one really knows what Paul's doing or saying, and a lot of people don't even know who he is. 
And so what we're going to do, as we've often been doing on Sunday nights, we've been looking at the speeches or the sermons that pop up throughout the stories. When you read Acts, you get a bunch of action, but then you'll get like a long sermon or a speech that, that'll pop up it, quite often. We're going to look at one of the speeches of Paul tonight. And this speech is given, he's been arrested, and he's talking to the Roman commander, and he asks for the opportunity to address the people. And he's given that chance. And so this is Paul explaining himself. Um, bad news, no matter how good of a job he's going to do, they're going to reject his message. In fact, Jesus has already told him that. We'll see that as we read through. Jesus already told him, you are not going to be successful evangelizing in Jerusalem. Uh, he's already been told that he's going to be beaten and arrested once he got there in the, in the chapters previously. But even when Paul first became a Christian, he wanted to be an evangelist to, to those in Jerusalem. And that makes so much sense. Paul is familiar with Jerusalem. Paul was one of them. Paul, this is the argument Paul's going to make. He's going to be like, if anyone understands these people, it's me. I, I'm zealous, I was zealous about the law. I'm someone who uh, practiced faithfully the teachings of Moses. I'm someone who was well-respected. I'm someone who was a persecutor of the church. If anyone can understand not liking the church, it's me. And yet I had this experience that changed my whole world, and he's going to talk about that experience. And, and now if anyone can relate that transition to these people in Jerusalem, it's Paul. And so that's what Paul wants to do. And Jesus says, no, they're going to reject you in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so Paul is going to give a, a speech here where he is going to do his best, even though it's doomed to failure, he's going to do his best to try to relate to his Jewish audience how it is that he went from being one of them to now someone who goes out among the Gentiles. And when he gets to that point, they're ultimately going to re reject his teaching and interrupt his lesson. He's not even really going to get to finish his lesson. Uh, but what Paul does in Acts chapter 22 is he gives a defense. Uh, it's not so much a defense of uh, the truth of the gospel, although that's there, and you can see that uh, through here. It's more of a personal defense as to why it is that he, as a Jew, is now someone who goes about teaching Gentiles the salvation of God. How did he make that transition, and why should they be willing to accept it? Uh, again, the reason he's been arrested is because everyone keeps associating him with Gentiles. They're thinking he's bringing Gentiles to the temple, or he's telling Jews among the Gentiles, hey, go live like Gentiles, don't keep the law anymore. Or they think he's some, some Egyptian riot uh, starter. You know, like you have all of these ideas about him and this Gentile mission, because no one seems to understand it. And so Paul's going to try to clarify things, and he'll do a good job. But people aren't going to listen to it because from the beginning, that's not where he's supposed to be doing his ministry. His ministry is going to work much better uh, going on these journeys that he's been on. So uh, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to see how Paul defends himself, uh, how he makes a defense for his transition from being a zealous uh, follower of the law of Moses to an evangelist to the Gentiles, and what happens in the middle, and how, perhaps, by believing his story, those who are listening to him, they could follow a similar trajectory. They could follow, have a, the similar journey that Paul has, uh, and they can go from people who are uh, right now wanting to kill him to people who are going to preach the same thing that he does. I think that's Paul's goal, that he can have the, his audience follow him on this journey. And so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, Acts chapter 22, 
in verse 1. Paul is going to speak here in the Hebrew dialect, uh, and he's going to uh, immediately get an audience with the people. You know, they, remember he was accused in uh, in verse thirty-eight of a uh, or verse thirty-seven of uh, being someone who uh, who knows Greek, or at least he does know Greek. Uh, he said, "Do you know Greek? Then you're not some Egyptian." Uh, so basically, Paul could speak Greek, but he's actually going to speak in Hebrew, and that's going to get him a little bit better of a of an audience. Uh, but chapter twenty-two and verse one. Paul begins, uh, men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. That word defense right there, it's an important one. Um, that's the word, uh, have you, like, apologetics is a word that is used about the defense of Christianity. Like, Christian apologetics uh, is when people give evidence for the existence of God, or the truth of the Bible, or the truth of uh, the historicity of Jesus, or the resurrection, or things like that. And I know I've heard some people have even told me before, uh, they don't like that it's called apologetics because that just makes it sound like you're, you're apologizing for Christianity and you know, we don't have to apologize for the truth. And, uh, and the English word apology can mean that, like I'm sorry, but it also has another meaning and it comes from a Greek word, apologia, uh, which is the word that Paul uses right here. And this word means uh, a defense. Like if you're put on trial and you're given the opportunity to defend yourself, you're going to make an apologia, a defense, an apology. Uh, and that's the way the word is used right here, and that's the way that Paul's going to use it. He's going to defend himself. Uh, and so this is his chance. This is the same word, by the way, that's used in 1 Peter 3.15, when all Christians are told to be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. Uh, we need to be people who, if you have to give a defense for who you are and why you believe what you believe, why it is that you have the hope of Christ within you, that you can give that defense. Well, Paul's about to give a defense right here. So verse 2, and it says, um, When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. That's a great way to start uh, if you're wanting to, to build some common ground with the people he's talking to. And notice, by the way, he does not say, I was a Jew. It's not like he used to be a Jew and now he's a Christian. Paul is a Jew who follows Christ. And I think that's, that's a, an important distinction that will help us understand the New Testament a little bit better. Um, becoming a Christian wasn't quite like leaving one religion and starting a new religion, which is why sometimes even the word conversion, um, when we talk about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, the word conversion raises a couple of question marks because conversion usually means like someone who is a uh, you know they're a Hindu and they stop being a Hindu and they start being a, a Christian or someone who is a Muslim like they stop one religion to start another religion that's not really exactly a good description of what happens when the early uh, followers of Christ who were you know Jews who believe the law of Moses when they become followers of Jesus. It wasn't like they then stopped being Jews. It was their Jews who were following the law of Moses and the prophets and the teachings of Israel and the Torah and all of that. And all of those things are leading them to this Messiah. And then they come to believe in this Messiah. That's like, I guess, if you talk about an engagement, um, two people are engaged to be married. You can break that engagement one of two ways. 
One way you can break it is by uh, breaking up and saying, we're not going to be with each other anymore, and like you go your separate ways. That way you were engaged, and the engagement ended. Why? Because you broke it. That would be more like, I'm, you know, I'm going to marry this person, then I stop and I marry this person instead, or something like that. Um, what I think is a better way to think about what happened with Judaism and Christianity is you had an engagement, and the engagement ended because there was a marriage. The engagement reached its designed purpose and was fulfilled. Uh, and so it's not, like, it's not like once you marry the person, you look at them, and they're no longer your fiancé, and so you think that, like, I'm done with you. No, you, you're still together. You still love each other. But your relationship is different now. Your relationship has transformed, and it's new, and it's great, and it's exciting. I don't think that Jews who became Christians were supposed to look back and be like, oh, I had such a bad, you know, bad life in Judaism, but now I have Christianity. It's the same God who they've been serving throughout, but now they come to understand that their Messiah that has been promised by this God is now here, and they can know their God through Jesus in even more beautiful ways. So it's, it's, the, same, uh, it's the same journey that they've been on. And so Paul starts off, and he's saying, I'm still a Jew. You know, I'm still someone who, uh, you know, I'm like— based on my genealogy, even based on his beliefs. I mean, he still follows, uh, or he still, he just offered sacrifice in the temple. You know, he's in Jerusalem. He still teaches and believes and reads Torah and all of that. Like, he's still, he's still a Jew. But he also is a Jew who comes to believe that the promise made to Abraham, that in you all, this, all the families of the earth will be blessed, has come to pass. And so now it's time for Judaism not to get smaller, but to open up the door to the whole wide world. And that's going to look different for a lot of people. And the Gentiles are now welcomed into this family. And so even Paul will, will throughout his letters, will use Jewish language to talk about people who aren't even Jews, you know, like ethnically, but they are adopted into the family of Abraham. And they are all now able to become, uh, you know, in essence, Israel. Uh, Israel is now expanded. And so that's something that Paul will, will do regularly. That's quite different than Paul saying, okay, I was a Jew, now I'm not a Jew anymore, and I'm a Christian. Uh, it's, it's something much better than that, I think. So anyway, Paul begins in verse 3 by saying, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Now that's important also, because we've already run into Gamaliel. Uh, Gamaliel is uh, mentioned in Acts chapter 5, when the disciples uh, have been arrested, and they're trying to figure out what to do with them. Should we kill them? What are we going to do? Gamaliel offers a solution that is much more peaceful than those who are around him. Basically, he says, look, we shouldn't be fighting against these guys and persecuting them and harming them and being violent and killing them. Um, if what they're doing is actually from God, then it would be foolish to do that anyway, because we'd be fighting against God and we're going to lose. But if what they're doing, as we all believe, is just some man-made idea, then it'll eventually fizzle out. And so let's just Let's just be patient and wait and see. Yeah, you can tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, but, but let's not set ourselves up to be fighting against God uh, when ultimately we wouldn't have to. If it's not from God, it'll just fizzle out. So that was Gamaliel's advice, and the council listens to it, kind of. They do beat them, but they don't kill them, and then they send them away. Uh, and so Gamaliel's someone who's kind of interesting. He's zealous for the law, or he's a, he's a follower of the law, but he's not someone who thinks you should 
uh, or that it's always a good idea to advocate violence against those who would uh, disrupt the teachings of, of Moses. Uh, he thinks you can find peaceful solutions. Paul was taught by him. Paul, however, if I think if you were to get his opinion at that same time period about what we ought to do with these Christians, would not be listening to his teacher. Uh, Paul is a persecutor. Paul does think you should use violence. And he's going to bring that up here in just a minute. Gamaliel has one way of dealing with heresy. Paul and a lot of his contemporaries have a different way of dealing with it. So if you're in the audience and you are someone who doesn't think you should be beating and imprisoning these people, well, Paul, you can kind of relate to him. He's a student of Gamaliel. But on the other hand, if you're one of those people who was just trying to beat and kill him, you're going to be able to relate to Paul also. So Paul is starting off this lesson very much trying to show that he can relate to the people he's speaking to. He's using their language. He is, uh, you know, addressing himself as a Jew. He's talking about he grew up in Jerusalem. He studied under their famous rabbi. You keep reading, he says, strictly according to the law of our fathers. But then verse 3 says, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. For from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So here's what Paul is saying. I grew up as a Jew. I studied under Gamaliel, but I was zealous. For the, for the God of Israel. In fact, I was so zealous that I was a persecutor. I was someone who thought, just like you think right now, that we should use violence against these people, do whatever it takes, beat them up, throw them in prison, kill them if you need to, do whatever you can to stop this heresy, because this heresy is going to bring God's wrath upon us, and we need to do whatever we can to put an end to it. That seems to be what Paul's idea is. And he said, and by the way, a lot of your leaders here know this. They actually gave me uh, authority and documents to travel and to leave Jerusalem, go all the way to Damascus, and bring these Christians to Jerusalem to be locked away and to be punished. Like, I was going to spread this persecution just like their movement was spreading i was going to spread the persecution like paul starts off by demonstrating his uh alliance with the people that he's talking to but notice that phrase there in verse three right at the end of it being zealous for god just as you all are today he's relating them by saying i was zealous just like you're zealous the word zeal uh, is one of those words that i think we can sometimes we read it and we think, all right, if I'm zealous for something, like I can be zealous for college football, I can be zealous for a lot of things, and it means you're, you're excited about it or you're committed to it or, uh, you know, it's something like we, we need to be zealous for God and, and, and you know, have, a, have a, a strong desire to, to please him and to think about it so much and to be just fervent in our uh, desire to, to do what God wants. And we kind of think of zealous sometimes along those lines, an excited fervor for God. In Judaism, and the way Paul's using it right here, it actually means something a little bit different than that. Um, sure, it means excited for God, but it specifically means being willing to use violence to defend God. Um, there was a tradition of zeal, or being a zealot, by the way. That's, that's a word, you know, a zealot is someone who will use violence uh, in, in their political stand. Well, Paul is saying that he was zealous for God, and then he describes that in verse 4 as being a persecutor. Being zealous means you're a persecutor. Um, 
So uh, in the Israelite tradition of zeal, it actually goes back to the Old Testament, to Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to read a passage for you from Numbers chapter 25. This is, it's not a very good story uh, or a fun story, but uh, Israel is... uh, out, you know, near the promised land, and what ends up happening is they're in their tents, they uh, have been going through the wilderness, and they're getting close to being able to cross and enter, like the 40 years is almost up, and a lot of the Israelite men start taking uh, pagan and, you know, women from from the plains of Moab and from uh, uh, the area where they are, and worshiping their gods and, and having sexual relations with these women. And so God starts to punish Israel with a plague. And one man says, no, this isn't right. We got to put a stop to it. Uh, Phinehas gets a spear, goes into one of the tents of someone who just flagrantly and brazenly brought a woman through all of the tents to his tent to have relations with her. And with one thrust of the spear, kills them both. Uh, so that's how the story goes. And so when that happens... Everyone kind of realizes, okay, we really shouldn't be doing this. Uh, This got serious. And so they stop, and God stops the plague. And so people start to look at Phinehas, the guy who thrust the spear through people, as someone who turned back the wrath of God. God was going to punish us, but because of his violence, God didn't punish us. And so he was very zealous, and God appreciated that. In fact, in Numbers chapter 25 and verse 11, this is what the text says. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath, that's what God says, from the sons of Israel, in that he was, now my translation says, jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Uh, the word uh, jealous is used three times in that verse, and it actually continues to be used a little bit more uh, as, as you continue to read. But that word jealous in Greek, it's the word uh, zealos, uh, or zeal, like it's the word we get zeal from. Uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes in, even in the New Testament, the word jealousies, like, like if you're looking at um, some of the... Uh, the works of the flesh, you'll see jealousies in there. And that's going to be the word zeal. The word zeal and the word jealous are the same word. And you can actually, I mean, they make sense that they would be the same word. Like if someone is, you know, stealing your spouse, you're going to be very jealous about that. And that's going to give you those, you know, feelings inside of you. That's kind of like the feeling of zeal. Uh, God is, is a jealous God. And when you see people who are going and, you know, completely disregarding him or worshiping idols or doing these things they're not supposed to be doing, and you want them to worship God only and, and commit themselves only to him, if you want Israel to be solely committed to God, that feeling of jealousy you get for God, that's what zeal is. And so that's what Phinehas has. He says he had God's zeal within him. He was zealous with God's zeal. And so he acted in a violent way. And, uh, and that became kind of a, a marker among Israel um, uh, about when you see uh, people going the wrong way, how you can handle it. And by the way, you, you can see this happen. Like, look at, uh, look at some of the stories of, uh, like, Elijah, the prophet, you know, and you have people who get involved in Baal worship. So, you know, some of them were put to death. Or with, uh, Josiah, uh, during his reforms, people were put to death because they had started uh, worshiping idols and doing these things. That's the tradition of, of zeal. In uh, one of the books that's not in our Old Testament, but it records the history of Israel from our Old Testament to our New Testament. There's a couple hundred years there in the middle. 
there were books written during Israel during that time. One of them is called 1 Maccabees. And 1 Maccabees uh, deals with a time period when a Greek king was trying to force the Israelites to stop practicing Judaism and to start practicing uh, you know, more Hellenistic ways of life. He was establishing his own high priest. He built a Greek gymnasium there. He uh, outlawed a lot of things like Sabbath observance. He, wanted, uh, he put uh, an idol to Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed swine on the altar. Like He did all sorts of things to completely defile and put an end to Judaism and to make them Greeks. Well, some Jews apparently went along with that. That's what First Maccabees says. You know, basically, if you didn't, you could die. And so they just kind of went along with it. Others, however, got really furious about it and decided they were going to do something. And this all comes together in this scene where a man named Mattathias is standing with a crowd and there's a Greek official who is going to force the Jews to offer pagan sacrifice. And he's looking for someone who's willing to get up there and do it. And finally, one man comes forward. And he is going to offer pagan sacrifice to the Greek gods uh, under the, the instructions of a Greek commander, completely in rejection of what God has told Israel to do. Um, so Mattathias is watching this, and notice what it says. This is First uh, Maccabees chapter 2, verse 24 through 27. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal. And his heart was stirred, and he gave vent to righteous anger, and he ran and he killed the man upon the altar. In the same time, he killed the king's officer, who was forcing them to sacrifice, and then he tore down the altar. Thus, he burned with zeal for the law, as Phinehas had done against Zimri, the son of Salu, when Mattathias cried out in the city with a loud voice, and this is what he shouts out in the city, let every man who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come with me. And then a crowd starts to gather with him. And so they end up fighting against the, their Greek overlords. That's what the book of 1 Maccabees is about. Uh, it's about these uh, battles that the Maccabean revolt uh, has against uh, the, the Greeks. But notice who is called to fight? Those who are zealous for the law. And who does it say he was zealous like? Like that story we read in Numbers. And so this idea of when you're zealous for the law, you fight for the law. When you're zealous for God, you fight for God. And whether it's someone in the plains of Moab sleeping with a woman he shouldn't be sleeping with and, and, and sacrificing to their gods, or whether it's someone who is sacrificing to pagan gods of the Greeks, or whether it's someone coming along and saying that this man who walked the streets of Jerusalem and was crucified is God and is our Christ and Messiah— those are all things that are going to get a zealous person very upset. And when you have, start having them say things like, um, all foods are clean, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. Those are the types of things that might set a zealous person off. Or that you don't have to, uh, to, to circumcise your children. Or some of these m things that separated Jews from the people around them, that's what they're going to be zealous for. And so this tradition of zeal is often associated with persecution. In fact, even in Paul's writings, uh, you can look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6. Notice what Paul says as he's describing his, his life in Judaism prior to his conversion. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says, uh, you know, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's what, like, when, it, when he mentions zeal, 
the description of that is persecution. <laughs> like that's as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Or uh, you can look at uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This is again Paul recounting his earlier life. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he says, For many of you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. He persecuted the church beyond measure. He wanted to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my uh, contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Notice again, persecution, zeal. So Paul uses zeal as a description of uh, what led to persecution and and stoning and killing Christians and, and standing against them and all of that. So I say all of that to show you that Paul is trying right now to build a relationship with his audience as they're listening to him. I told you at the very beginning of this lesson to remember a phrase that was used all the way back in chapter 21 and verse 20 when James is meeting with Paul and they're talking about the the state of, uh, of the way Christians are thinking about him. And he says, chapter 21 and verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. That might mean more than just they're excited to keep the law of Moses. Um, It might actually mean people are getting really angry. Even believers are getting really angry about what you're doing among the Gentiles. And so we don't want there to be violence within the church. So Paul, let's do something to work this out now. Uh, And so Paul goes and he offers sacrifice in the temple. Um, Now that would be wrong and sinful uh, for the church to actually act out in violence. But I do think you have that phrase, they're zealous for the law. Then Paul ends up being beaten and now he has the chance to defend himself. And he says, look, I was zealous for God also. I was zealous just like all of you are here today. Uh, And he goes on to describe what that means is he persecuted the church and he would want people put to death. He would do whatever he could to put an end to it. But then verse 6, chapter 22, but it happened. Um, That's a big phrase right there. Uh, All of the stuff he's just been saying, his long tradition of zeal in Israel, his uh, his whole life growing up as a faithful Jew, his studying under Gamaliel, like all of that stuff defined who he was and his identity and his whole way of life. And it, it was what made him relate to all of those people standing there. But then it happened that I was on my way, uh, this is where he's going to Damascus, and this is where he's going to go persecute the church there. But suddenly, light flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And one of the things that's incredible about that verse is it does a couple of things. One, it makes it very clear that the Jesus who Paul thinks is a fraud, is very much alive and is very, very powerful. Uh, Death didn't put an end to Jesus because here he is standing before me. Uh, This is something where you see the very light from heaven, the blinding light from heaven is there accompanying him. So Paul is uh, going to learn here the truth of the gospel by seeing emphatically so seeing so much that he can't see anymore the truth of the gospel uh it blinds him it's so bright Uh, but then you also have jesus doing something interesting when he says why are you persecuting me 
because Paul actually didn't do anything to harm Jesus. Uh, Jesus was crucified by the Romans and was already dead. Uh, Paul is persecuting Jesus' people. But Jesus tends to believe, and when Jesus believes something, you should too, that the way you treat his people is the way you treat him. In fact, in Matthew 25, there's a parable about that, you know, like, uh, you know, when I was, I was naked and you clothed me, I was hungry and you fed me, I was uh, in prison and you visited me, and you say, well, when did I do that? You know, and you say, well, as many as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The idea is that if you are good to God's people, then you're being good to Jesus. If you are cruel and divisive, or if you're persecuting a, a God's people, then you're actually persecuting Jesus himself. And so Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? And uh, Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Like, you're persecuting me. Uh, and then verse 9, And those uh, who were with me, they saw the light to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told um, all that has been appointed for you to do. So then he describes uh, getting up. He goes to Damascus. He's led by the hand there because he's blind. And notice verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me. Now this, this Ananias is uh, someone who also has a really good reputation among the Christians, but that's not what Paul emphasizes right here as he's speaking to this Jewish audience in Jerusalem. He says this is a guy who according to the standard of the law is living an impeccable life. Uh, and he's well spoken of by all the Jews who are there. So again, this is Paul saying, even this Christian is someone you all should have tremendous respect for. Uh, being, believing that Jesus is the Messiah is not a reason for Jews to stop thinking you're a good guy or a good Jew. This is someone who, like Paul says, I'm a Jew. He says that Ananias is someone who's in great standing with the law and all the Jews respect him. It's like, you should be careful to make assumptions about Christians just because they believe that the Jewish Messiah has come. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are now bad people. And so Ananias becomes another example of someone who's living a right life according to the law, uh, but is also a believer. But then he comes in verse 13, and standing near said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And that is particularly he's seen and heard the risen Lord Jesus. And Paul is going to go be a witness to all men concerning that. Now, what's interesting is uh, Paul hears this. This is what his mission is going to be. It's not actually the mission that Paul seems to have, would have chosen for himself. Uh, Paul, I mean, all men are great, but he has some specific people who he really thinks he can reach. Those, those Jews in Jerusalem, the people who he was educated with, the people who he has been like, the people who he has experienced zeal with, uh, Gamaliel, who he has uh, studied under. Like, you have all of these people, and uh, Paul is going to be uh, a witness to all men. And so then Ananias, after telling him what his job is, says, okay, so now it's time. Why are you waiting? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
It's like, it's time for you to become a follower. So wash away all the sins of your past. Wash away uh, that the, the zealous violence that you've acted towards God's people, the, persecuting of, the persecution of Jesus, and call on his name, having them washed away in baptism. And uh, verse 17, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. This is after his conversion. He goes to Jerusalem, and he is praying in the temple, and he falls into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, this is what Jesus says to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So remember I told you at the beginning, it's a, it's a doomed lesson. Even at the very beginning, he was told when he gives testimony about Jesus in Jerusalem, it's not going to work. Uh, he goes there and uh, Jesus is saying, you need to go do your work elsewhere. It's not going to work in Jerusalem. Now Paul has gone to Jerusalem. The first thing that happens is he gets arrested. Uh, now he's giving a, a defense of himself and the people aren't listening to it, uh, or at least they're not going to take it well. Verse 19, Paul says, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your uh, witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by and approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. So Paul's responding to Jesus saying, I mean, they know me though. I'm, I'm one of them. Like I, I, I can totally make an, an impact here. When Stephen was being stoned, I was right there with them. I, they know I went from synagogue to synagogue. Like Paul thinks that he can reach these people. And then Jesus responds in verse 21, and he said to me, go, for I will send you away to the Gentiles. And at that word, these people who have been spreading rumors that he brought a Gentile to the temple or uh, that he himself is, uh, is telling people not to follow Moses anymore, or to reject the law or to not circumcise, all these different ideas that are swirling around. He explains to them, the reason I'm going to the Gentiles, it's not that I didn't want to be with you, it's that the risen Lord Jesus sent me to be with the Gentiles. And as soon as he says that, verse 22, they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And then you can kind of read beyond that. Uh, but we're going to bring it to a close here, and we can see a couple of important things. One is that sometimes, no matter how much sense it makes to you, uh, Paul, I think, thinks that his message to these people should really hit home with them because he relates to them so well. Uh, sometimes people just aren't going to listen. You can't make them. Uh, sometimes people will reject the message of Jesus and there's nothing you can do to stop that. You can be a faithful representative and a faithful witness and a faithful evangelist, but you can't change people. And that's something that I think Paul is learning here. Along those same ideas, you can't change people. Point two, persecution is something that Paul would use to change things. You know, that's the, what he would use to would have used. And that's what many of those Jews are using there. And again, persecution is something that's like, you can try to force a change, but even the change is going to be artificial. It's not like you, you really change someone's heart in, in their, their allegiance. You, through fear, got someone to act like a coward, but that's not the type of change that makes any long-term impact. What's really incredible about Paul is while he was a Jew prior to being a Christian, he handled his adversaries 
through violence and persecution. That's what he th through zeal, through uh, trying to do whatever he could to stop them. And that was what he thought God wanted him to do. He could be like Phineas, you know, he could be like this part of this tradition. What's incredible to me is he soon becomes a Christian and he still has a lot of critics. He still has a lot of people he disagrees with. There are still a lot of people who he thinks are heretics. There are people he runs into who he thinks are dis distorting the gospel and leading people astray. And what's incredible is Paul no longer calls for them to be killed or stoned or uh, persecuted or you know, have violence inflicted upon them. Instead, when he has enemies now, he says, pray for your enemies and love those who, who, uh, who hate you and bless those who curse you. Like When you read Romans 12, that is not the description of someone who thinks you should be stoning and killing your enemies. The change that Jesus made in the way that he views his enemies is evident by the way that he used to persecute them and consent to their death to now he loves them and will suffer for them. He's modeling what Jesus did. Uh, and that becomes a profound testimony, I think, to the goodness of Jesus. And finally, uh, I think you can learn the point from this. That, and it's a point all the way throughout Acts. But that Jesus and his love is not bound to one particular time and place and people. But Jesus has plans for the whole world. Uh, Paul thought, I can make an impact here in Jerusalem. And Jesus' plans were something far bigger than that. Um, and so I think throughout the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see how Paul's plans were so small in comparison to Jesus's. Now, granted, he's in prison uh, or he is under arrest, but he's going to travel. He's going to end up in the heart of the capital of the ancient world in Rome. And he's going to be able to make a huge impact uh, every step of the way. And those are some of the plans that Jesus has. Sometimes we can't predict them but they're usually far better than our own. Uh, if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight or would like the prayers of the church, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.